0: So one of the reoccurring themes, and I mentioned this last week, that I hear amongst Christians is the seeming lack of reverence within the church today, specifically within the Protestant church. I hear many Protestants say, well, you know, I'm not Catholic, and uh, but I kind of wish we were a little bit more reverent like the Catholics. And I hear that often, and I empathize with that. I really do. I get it. Those that have this concern, and I'm really kind of one of them, feel that the church has slowly drifted from a place that was once sacred and set apart to a place that is somewhat informal and rather common. Would you agree? I think many of us have that concern. Now, admittedly, there is a lot of subjectivity when it comes to making this type of assessment, and here's why. The fact is just because someone or something appears to lack reverence doesn't mean that's the case necessarily at all. And that's precisely because, and this is very important, when we talk about the subject of reverence, it really is first and foremost a heart issue. It's where's your heart? Sometimes the external doesn't always look reverent, but the heart can be reverent, right? As an example of this, no one had a more reverent heart than Jesus, yet he often did things that appeared to be absolutely irreverent to those around him. For example, he broke bread With prostitutes, and he ate meals with sinners. He touched lepers, lepers, not leopards. He touched lepers. He might have touched leopards too. I don't know. He created them though, that's for sure. He touched lepers, and he healed those who were considered unclean. He broke the Sabbath. He even caused a ruckus twice at the beginning of his once at the beginning of his ministry, and once at the end when he cleared the temple. And this is a a painting, a famous painting from the medieval times. There's Jesus. Does that look like a reverent man to you? Not necessarily, does it? But in fact, this was one of the most reverent acts In all of world history that is unfolding, that you see unfolding right there before your very eyes. So that's why I say we have to be careful because this is we can make subjective judgments and they're sometimes hard to do. The Pharisees, of course, were among those who often felt that Jesus was being irreverent. They would often go to his disciples and say to us, Tell us why. Tell us why your teacher or your why your rabbi does this or he does that. They didn't understand. They went to the disciples like they understood totally what Jesus was doing. They often didn't understand either. So we want to be careful, again, on the one hand, not to make rash judgments about what uh, might appear to us to be irreverent behavior. But on the other hand, we certainly don't want to fall into the trap of treating common that which is holy. We don't want to fall into that trap either. The truth is, if we are not careful, it is possible to act irreverently. And in today's Modern landscape of the church, you would think that it's almost impossible to do that. Well, you, you, anything goes in today's world and in today's church. But the fact is, we can act irreverent if we are not careful. Very practical way that we can do this just to get us started this morning, is when we as believers treat the name of the Lord in a common or careless fashion. Of course, Exodus, this is chapter 20, the Ten Commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And there's a lot of ways that we can do this, where we can just treat God's name as common, or we can handle it carelessly. Of course, when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, a prayer that we just prayed, what did he teach them to pray? Let's say it together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your name be hallowed, may it be respected and revered. Now, with this being said, are those people who feel that the Protestant church in particular has slipped into patterns of irreverence justified in feeling that way? I think to a certain degree, they are. We are, because I'm kind of in that camp too. Let me give you two reasons why I think that is the case. The first reason is this, in an attempt to make the modern church seem more relevant Protestants have actually adopted practices that are irreverent. We want to become relevant, but in the process, we have become irreverent. I think one way that this has manifested itself is the watering down and the softening of biblical truth. In an attempt to make the church seem more attractive, we have tried to sound less religious, right? And so as a result, churches over the last 20 or 30 years all over America stopped talking about things like sin, repentance, God's wrath, or the coming judgment of Christ. We wanted to be more attractive, and we thought, let's just sound less religious. If we sound less religious, we'll look more attractive. No topic, of course, in the Bible was off limits, as the gospel was often watered down so that the church could build its numbers up. Let's not tell them the gospel in its entirety, because if we do, people won't come. Let's tell them the hard stuff later. Let's just water it down until we think they're ready. Added to this was the church's desire to also divest itself of anything that looked Christian. That's right, we wanted our times of corporate worship to neither sound Christian nor look Christian because in our minds that would turn people off. As a result, crosses were taken down, stained glass windows were removed, smoke machines burst onto the scene. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, churches took on a very different feel. They looked different. They sounded different. They looked different. Which brings me to a second reason why I think people are justified in their concerns about the Protestant church slipping into patterns of irreverence. And that is, we have made God so common that we now border on being contemptuous. We have made God so unbelievably common that we border on being contemptuous. And what I mean by that is that we have let the pendulum swing. From God being majestic and holy and set apart, completely other than us, to him being so radically near and like us that there is now no more reverence in us. So this is important. Little theology. Ready? The Bible speaks of two important doctrines. The first is the transcendence of God. That means that God is transcendent. He is other than us. He is majestic and holy and set apart from his creation. He is not like us. He is spirit. He is God. He is eternal. But it also speaks of his imminence, meaning he is close to us, and he is accessible to us, and he loves us. So his, God is both transcendent and imminent. And if we fail to keep those two truths in proper balance, we're going to end up with either a God who is distant and unapproachable, if all we do is focus on his transcendence, or one who is potentially casual and common, if all we ever talk about is his imminence. The fact of the matter is, even the most godly of people can cross that line from reverence to irreverence. Let me prove it to you. Even the best of them. When I mention the name Job, what do you think of? You think of a man that suffered. But you also think of a man who was righteous, and he was. He was a righteous man whom God allowed to be tested at the hands of Satan. And he did, he, he, he did wonderful in that test. Job resisted the temptation to curse God and die as his wife wanted him to do, bless her heart. <laughs> he also resisted the temptation to believe lies about God, which his friends wanted him to do, his three friends wanted him to do. Nevertheless, there is a point somewhere in the book of Job where he seemed to have crossed the line. He, he pressed things a little bit too hard, enough so that in Job chapter 38, God asked Job a series of questions to put him in his place. A friend of mine who was a judge, and I've mentioned this before, who's a judge here in Arizona, said this is the most withering cross-examination in all of scripture. Listen to what God says to Job to put him in his place. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Gulp. (laughs) Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding who determined its measurements. Surely you know. Folks, this is just a taste of what God does to Job in chapter 38. After God is done with this withering cross-examination, Job responds as he should with reverence and humility and repentance. Listen to the words of Job. It's beautiful. Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Folks, if we are not careful, even the best of us, the best of churches, the best of families, can fall into patterns of irreverence if we are not careful. So, with that being said, when it comes to the topic of reverence, where do we start? Where in the world would we possibly start on this subject? Well, I think a good place to start is where the scriptures tell us to start, and that is with the issue of fearing the Lord. The Bible has much to say about this. Psalm 111.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have good understanding. And by the way, I kind of used a yellow font. I'll change that next week so it's a little bit more clear. Uh, Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One insight." And then Psalm 14, 27 says this, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. I've said it before and I'll say it again. If anyone ever asks you to disciple disciple them and you're not sure where to start, start here. Start here and stay here until this is crystal clear. Amen? Start here and stay here until this is crystal clear. Not in just those that you're discipling, but in your own life and in the life of your family. Start here and stay here until this is crystal clear, because if you try to build on a foundation other than this, you're going to build on a shoddy, weak foundation. By the way, this also applies to when we preach the gospel. When we preach the gospel, we should leave those who are listening to us with a sense of awe and reverence of the God that we are proclaiming to them. Amen? If we Proclaim to them a passive, weak God. There's going to be no fear in them. You go, well, we don't want to introduce the fear of the Lord right away. Yes, you do. You want them to tremble before the God that is about to judge them. The wrath of God abides on them. We want them to fear the Lord from the earliest possible moment when we proclaim them to him. Do you want to know um, that this is in the Bible? I'm not making this stuff up. Listen to this. 2 Thessalonians, listen to this. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. When he comes, On that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among those who have believed. When we preach the gospel, yes, we want people to know that God is accessible. He's merciful and kind. He draws close to us. He drew close to us in the sending of his son to die for us. But we don't want them to lose sight of the fact that this is a God who created all things. And he exists, as the Bible says, as consuming fire. Amen? The transcendence of God and the imminence of God are two truths that we want to hold near and dear at all times in our lives. In this sense, the gospel is both terrifying and terrific. It's terrifying in that we are all going to stand before a God who the Bible says exists in unapproachable light, who who is a consuming fire. But it is terrific in that there is total forgiveness of sins of those that place their faith in Jesus Christ. Amen? That's the gospel. It is both terrifying and terrific. Now, the pressing question this morning then becomes this. What exactly does it mean to fear the Lord? What does it mean to? What does it look like on a daily basis? Now, to answer this question, I want to start with a little bit of church history, compliments of one of my favorite theologians, the late great Dr. R.C. Sproul. Anybody know Dr. R.C. Sproul? You know that name? One of the best ever. Dr. Sproul points out that the great Protestant reformer Martin Luther made a distinction when it came to the topic of the fear of the Lord, specifically, Luther distinguished between two things. The first was this, servile fear, and that's Latin for slave. Servile fear is the type of fear that a slave would have at the hands of a malicious master who would come to whip and torment him, or the kind of fear that a prisoner in a torture chamber might feel for his tormentor, the jailer, or the executioner. It's the kind of dreadful anxiety in which someone is frightened by the clear and present danger that is represented by a vicious person. And perhaps you can relate to that if you've ever been around somebody who's out of control to the point where you were literally afraid for your safety. If you've ever been in that environment, that's, I think, what Luther's talking about here. On the other hand, Luther talked about what was called a filial fear. And that's Latin for family. And refers to the type of fear that a child has for his father. This is the child who sees his father as both sympathetic yet strong patient yet powerful, kind yet caring, merciful yet mighty. In that sense, the child knows that he can run to his father and jump in his arms, but at the same time, he stands in awe of his dad. He is his hero. It's an awe-inspiring respect for his father. And this distinction by Luther is incredibly helpful, and it becomes even more helpful when we survey the scriptures because you know what happens when we see, survey the scriptures? We see a God that is both transcendent and imminent at the same time. Let me give you a really good example of a man who experienced that firsthand. It was Moses, and it was when he was on Mount Sinai. Church, hear the word of God. Listen to this passage, because in it we see a a man who is talking to God face to face as one talks to a friend, and another one who is told that if you see me, you'll die. (laughs) Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on a rock And while my glory passes by you, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face you shall not see. It shall not be seen. Wow. You shall see my back. What in the world does that mean? What does the back of God look like? I can tell you this much whatever Moses saw, it caused his face to glow. It it caused his face to glow. When Moses came down from the mountain with the two tablets of testimony in his hand, he came down from the mountain. Moses did not know that his skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Face to face as one talks to a friend and Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses and behold the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to come near him incredible. The people were afraid to come near Moses because Moses had been near God. By the way, side note, do you want to know why our culture is so out of control? Because there's no fear of God in the eyes of anyone. But you know why there's no fear of God in the eyes of anyone? I would argue that the church is to blame for that. We have preached a passive, wimpy God over the last 30 or 40 years, We have not preached a God that is going to hold men accountable and bring them into judgment. All of us. A God that exists in unapproachable light in consuming fire. We have not preached that God. And so not only has the church not feared the Lord, the world doesn't either. Listen, the church, the world should be looking at the church and seeing a group of people who walk humbly before their God in reverent fear and awe of the one who created all things, both seen and unseen. Our God is a consuming fire. This is a powerful display, by the way, of the utter, the incredible accessibility of God and the utter incomprehensibility of God, all on display in one passage. Moses drawing near to God, talking to him face to face as one talks to a friend, and yet one who cannot even look upon God because he'll die, but he sees the backside and his face glows. It's better than Mary Kay. Go into the presence of the Lord. (laughs) Go into the presence of the Lord and your face will glow. (laughs) When a person draws near to God, we must remember, folks, we are not just drawing near to anyone. We're not drawing near to a governor or a prince or a king or a president. We are drawing near to the one who the Bible says is a consuming fire. Deuteronomy chapter 4, they're warning them about making idols. Take care lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make a carved image the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. Don't make ima- Don't make carved images. We're going to talk about this in a couple of weeks, just about giving our glory to carved images. But then it says this, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire. We see this very thing in the New Testament as well. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Now listen to this. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Folks, there is a form of unacceptable worship that can be rendered to God. Do you know that? And if we are not careful, even the best of us, even the Job's can cross that line. And this is a teaser for next week. Whatever you do, do not miss next week's sermon because we're going to be talking about what it looks like to offer God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. And I've already written the message and I'm going to refine it this week, but I'm going to tell you, you don't want to miss that message. I think another powerful example of God drawing near to his creation yet being totally set apart from his creation is the Mount, what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration. By the way, if you come to Israel with me and with the Shulers, you're going to go to the Mount of Transfiguration. You'll see all of these places in the Bible. Listen to this. Listen, this is Jesus who drew near to the disciples in the flesh. That's how near he came to them. But in a moment when the veil is lifted, even for a second, what do they see? They see this. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain, by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to him Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter, bless his heart, said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, we'll make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Okay. (laughs) He was still speaking when behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces. What does that word say? Terrified. And by the way, let me just say something right here. There's a lot of modern day people on TV and on the radio and preachers who are telling, they're going to say, well, I saw a vision of God. I saw this. I saw that. No, they didn't. First of all, they didn't. But secondly, if they did, they would have fallen on their faces terrified. Terrified. But they never do. It's like I saw God and he told me something. You know, I got special revelation from God. God, listen guys, the the scriptures are sufficient. If you want to know men who truly saw God, go to the Bible. These three men saw Jesus in his glory and they fell at his feet as though terrified. That is the transcendence of God. But the very next verse speaks of the imminence of God, the closeness of God. Because what does Jesus say? But Jesus came and touched them and said, rise and have no fear. See, that's the balance that we must maintain. God is transcendent. He's glorious. He's majestic. We walk into his presence humbly, grateful, full of thanksgiving at all times and in all ways, knowing that he didn't owe us anything, but he gave us everything. But on the flip side of it, we're children. And we're commanded by the scriptures to come boldly before the throne of grace with confidence to receive help in our time of need. This is the God that you and I serve. He's both transcendent and imminent. Jesus is the ultimate example of a God drawing near while also being a God whom we should fear. Again, the fear that we're talking about is not a malicious type of fear of somebody that we're afraid of, but the awe-inspiring fear of a son that respects his father. Now, here's the kicker. You want to know what it means to fear the Lord? You might be surprised. You do it all the time. You just don't realize it. You fear the Lord more than you think. And let me prove it to you. The reality is, is that whenever we read in the scriptures of people marveling at the greatness of God, the supremacy of God, the holiness of God, or any other aspect of God, or when you you do that, you are reading about people that are standing in awe-inspiring fear and reverence of the Lord. Let me prove it to you. Listen to the words of David. David is marveling in this passage at the omniscience of God, that God knows all things, but more specifically, how intimately God knows David. And then listen to David's response at the end of this. Oh Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways, even before a word is on my tongue. Behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in. Behind him before, you lay your hand upon me. Now listen to this. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too high. I cannot attain it. I cannot attain it. David, when he considers the omniscience of God, is utterly dumbfounded in his presence. Folks, this is a man who's standing in awe-inspiring fear of the Lord. And by the way, anytime you do that too, that's you honoring the Lord and walking in fear and reverence of him. Think about it, the God that created billions of galaxies, trillions of stars, of which the Bible says he calls them all by name. The God that knows the name of every star in the universe who created all things seen and unseen, meaning all the angels, the glorious angels that fly before the throne of grace, that if we could see even the angels, we would fall before them as though terrified and dead. And yet the God that has done all that loves you. He knows you. He knows you better than you. He knows you inside and out. He's gracious and kind to you. This is the God that you serve. Stand in awe of this God. This God manages and controls everything in this universe. As Dr. R.C. Sproul once said, is there. if there's even one rogue molecule in all the universe, God is not sovereign, but God is, in, God is sovereign over, over all things at all times. But here's the kicker. The God that is sovereign over all things at all times loves you enough to send his son to die for you. He loves you and knows every aspect about you. All the, all the skeletons in the closet, all the good things, all the bad, he knows it all. This is the God that you serve. Paul, by the way, also had a similar awe-inspiring perspective of God's omniscience. Listen to this passage. This is Paul talking like David. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. This is a man who fears the Lord. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Amen. Folks, these are two men that stand, are standing in awe, reverent awe of the Lord. And by the way, here's the point. Whenever you stand before God and you're like, Lord, you are amazing and you're just blown away, that is you walking in fear of the Lord and, and, and being reverent and humble before him. And It might be because of God's omniscience or his on, omnipotence, you know, that he's all-powerful. Or it could be something as simple, I say as simple, as God's incredible love for you. Oh, by the way, Paul marveled at that too. Listen to this. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God. There's a man that is marveling at the love of God. Whenever we stand in awe of God's greatness, His power, His majesty, His glory, His grace, His forgiveness, whatever it might be, that is a person that's standing in fear and reverence of the Lord. The disciples experienced this when Jesus did miracles. Remember when he calmed the water? What does it say? And they woke him and said, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the seas obey him? Folks, the more that we mature in our understanding of God's greatness, his power, his majesty, his glory, his grace, and his forgiveness, the more we can't help but walk in humble fear of the one that we serve. And folks, that is exactly what the world needs to see from those of us who are Christians. It needs to see a people who walk and hold in balance both the transcendence and imminence of God. That we are a people that fall before him and worship him because he is majestic and holy. But we are a God that also runs into his arms like little child, like little children when we need, need him in our time of need. Amen. Walking humbly before our God. This is what the Bible calls us to do. Micah, you know this passage. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. That sense of humility, by the way, that we are to have before our God, Jesus talked about it. Listen to this passage. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he comes in from the field, come at once and recline at the table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what he was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants, we have done what was our duty. This is what it means to walk humbly before our God. He is a God that loves us enough to send his one and only son to die for us and he draws near to us. And loves us on a very intimate level. But folks, lest we ever forget that we come before the Lord who exists in consuming fire and unapproachable light, we never want to lose sight of that. On the one hand, we are redeemed, forgiven, loved, and accepted, forever adopted into the family of God. On the other hand, we walk humbly before the God we serve. Now, here's the deal. I'm going to wrap up with this. We might look around at the church today, the world today, and think, well, everybody's, there's no reverence anymore. Listen, the bigger question is, what do you see when you look in the mirror? Do you have a reverent heart before God? Do you fear him? Do you walk in obedience to him? Do you trust him and love him? Do you honor his name? Do you proclaim his glory? Are you ashamed of him? Ashamed to proclaim him? See, the temptation is going to be strong to assimilate to the world. The world is going to say, well, we want God to be like this. Well, here's the thing. That's called an idol. I don't care what the world thinks of God. I care what the Bible says about God. And our God is a God that is both transcendent and imminent. And we need to hold those in balance. I finish with this. I'm going to tell you something maybe many of you didn't know. Many of you are, this congregation is incredibly smart. Those that are watching online, incredibly smart. But let me tell you something maybe you didn't know. You all know John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That's John 3.16. Do you know what Malachi 3.16 says? Malachi 3.16, is. it's a passage in which the Bible says, the Lord took notice of those who feared him and talked about him, and a scroll of remembrance was made in the presence of God, and the names of those who feared him were written down in that scroll. Listen to this. Malachi 3.16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. Incredible raises a really interesting theological question. Are those who fear him even today still being added to that scroll? Are the names of those who fear him and talk about him today still being added to that scroll? I don't know. But of this you can be certain based upon this verse. God has regard for those who fear him. Amen? God has regard for those who fear him. Don't look at the world and be discouraged. Don't look at the world and say, well, everyone else has lowered their standards. Maybe I should. You don't do that. We don't do that. We remain a church, an individual. We, re- we lead our families with an awe-inspiring respect of the God that we serve. Amen? At all times and in all ways. And when we proclaim the gospel, we're not afraid to tell them of the God that they are about to stand in judgment of, a God that consists in consuming fire and that stands ready to judge you, but is so merciful that he sent his son to die for you. Run to him while you can. Repent and believe upon him while you can. This is what we need to proclaim. We need to proclaim it boldly and proudly. We need not be afraid of what the scriptures say about the God that we serve. Amen? So go boldly today. Serve the Lord your God. He has redeemed you. He has called you by name. You are his child. Run into his arms to receive help in your time of need. But don't err where Job erred. Don't get too big for your britches. Remember the one that you serve. God who owes you nothing gave you everything. You are here to serve him. And that is by his grace.